What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? All right, all right. Well, we're going to be in Genesis 39 to 41. If you have your Bibles, Bible apps, all that good stuff, get it open and warmed up. Uh, we did something last week that we're going to repeat until the Global Leadership Summit is over because it's fun and because it's important, I think, that we recognize uh, the, some of the great servants that are among us. Uh, and so today, I'm going to invite two super studs to the stage, Warren Wade and Stanley Murphy. Come on up. Uh, and we're going to give these two gentlemen a free ticket to the Global Leadership Summit as a way of, of investing in these. But let me, let, me, let me introduce these two guys to you, okay? So this is Stanley, who I never even saw his face till about a month ago because of the masks uh, we were wearing. Uh, but he's been out in front with a great, amazing attitude. He, he's a little newer to NBC. What a blessing he is. He set up teardown, hospitality, the greeting, front door stuff, men's ministry, just an amazing, amazing servant of the Lord. And so, Stanley, we want to give you a free ticket to GLS as a way of saying we love you, brother. We're, 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 we're honored to have you in our midst, and uh, we, we view you as a, as a great servant. We want to invest in you. So, God bless you, brother. Let's give Stanley a hand. Thanks, Amen. Sir. Amen. And then there's this guy, Mr. Warren Wade. Uh, if, we, if we retired jerseys for servants in this church, Warren might have his retired. He's been around since some of the earliest days of New Vintage Church. And, and I think quite literally he's done about every, every possible task there is, from everything ranging from trash pickup to clicking slides to greeting to, I mean, helping. I think you helped me teach the baptism class once. I mean, I think we've, we've used this guy as a Swiss Army knife of all different kinds over the years, and he has done it with a, with a great attitude. His commitment to our church is incredible, and so we want to do the same thing for you, give you, and, and, and in fact, he's going to leave here and go click. I don't know if you're clicking at this service or yeah, not. Okay, so he's got to get back and click slides. <laughs> so if, if, um, I just want you to know that uh, this man right here, his fingerprints are all over the church in so many wonderful ways. So Warren, we love you, brother. Um, enjoy the summit, courtesy of, of your church family. All right, awesome, awesome. All right, our man Joseph. Well, he's in bad shape again. He's, uh, as you know, started out as a little boy, some traumatizing events in his childhood. One of those, the capstone, became uh, being mugged by his brothers, having himself stripped of his cloak, which was representation of his father's favoritism toward him. He's thrown into a pit. And they're going to kill him. And then Reuben says, no, nah, don't kill him. That's, 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 that's mean. So he says then, all right, we're going to take him and let's sell him as a slave instead. They kind of do that when Reuben's off doing his own thing. The other brothers get together and they sell him as a slave. So off he goes to Egypt. He's sold to some Midianite slave traders. Midianites say, all right, we're going to sell him uh, to the Egyptians. Strapping lad, looks like he's smart. Uh, we'll go ahead. We should be able to get a, a good rate for him. So they buy him for... 20 shekels of silver, not very much, pretty common price for a slave. They take him, they sell him into the house of Potiphar. Potiphar is second in command in Egypt, captain of the guard. The second mo he controls the military of Egypt, who's the most powerful nation in the world. As usual, Joseph rises to the top. Potiphar realizes this kid's got something. Uh, everything I put in his care flourishes and prospers. And we're told in the text it's because the Lord was with Joseph. So he was with Joseph back there, and he's with him as he rises and ascends inside Potiphar's house. The problem is Potiphar's wife is fond of Joseph as well, if you know what I'm saying, wink, wink. So she makes a pass at Joseph day after day after day saying, 
lie with me, and he refuses to do it. He says, I'm, your husband has been gracious to me and allowed me all these privileges. He hasn't withheld anything from me. I couldn't do this to Potiphar, and I surely can't do it against God either. This would be wicked. I can't do it. And so, eventually, uh, she's had enough of the nose, decides she's just going to grab him, and when she does, he flees, leaving his jacket in her hands. As we talked about last week, she then frames him and basically makes it seem to everybody that Joseph was the one who attacked her. For that lie, Joseph ends up in jail where he remains, not for a day or two, years, years. So put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's had a bit of up and down in his life. And now he finds himself in this prison where he will sit for years. But we're told this in Genesis 39, 21 to 23. The Lord was with Joseph in the prison, and he showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. And over everything that happened in the prison, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything, and the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So there it is again. The Lord was with Joseph. He continued to show his faithful love to Joseph, even when he's in jail. You mean that when you're in jail, God still loves you? Yes. You mean you, that if God's with you, you can still end up in jail? Yes. Because you can often end up in jail, too, for doing what's right, which is exactly what happened to Joseph. And in a certain way of thinking, that should never happen. Because our relationship to God is one in which I'm faithful and God's supposed to be faithful in return. In reality, God is always faithful and we are occasionally faithful. That's how it actually works. But we think that we deserve great awards, our own version of the peace prize, for having a good week or two in the kingdom. So if we end up doing something, and in Joseph's case, he suffers for doing good, and he sits there for a long time, for years, the text says. The Lord is with Joseph wherever he goes. So here's our man, Joseph, God's presence with him, greater than our circumstances. Joseph started, you know, doing what he does. He ends up like winning if the Prisoner of the Year Award or whatever that they've got there in the prison. The, the warden loves this guy. He puts him in charge of everything. He says, hey, I'm going to put you over all the other prisoners. So it seems like no matter where you put Joseph, he tends to rise. He tends to prosper. And the Bible is fairly consistent in saying the reason is it's because God is with him. So the way that you rise up is not through just going to school and learning better strategies or putting in more work than everybody else. If God is with you, everything's going to be fine. If he's not with you, heaven forbid he's against you, you can't succeed. So the presence of God is one of the key motifs through the life of Joseph, okay? And Joseph's faithfulness from a human standpoint, okay, for us, that's our job, to, to try to ride these waves like Joseph does because what he does is remain this, uh, consistent and faithful through all of these gyrations in the, the trajectory of his life. So one day, Old Joseph, prisoner of the year. He's in prison and he runs into a couple of guys. One is in the, this is in the king's prison, remember. So this is where uh, the, the mucky mucks of Egypt throw their prisoners. Uh, you upset somebody, they get thrown in that jail. 
if, if you upset somebody at the top, Pharaoh, Potiphar, people like that. So he's there, and the cupbearer of Pharaoh, and the baker of Pharaoh. Now, the cupbearer is somebody, this tells you what kind of life Pharaoh had. This is a guy who tests your wine before you drink it to make sure it's not full of poison. So if somebody's trying to kill you, he'll die first, and that way you won't drink poison wine. So among other things, this is a highly trusted individual. Uh, Nehemiah in the Bible is a cupbearer to the king, and, and, it's, and you can get a picture there of how trusted Nehemiah is. He's more than just a wine taster. He's somebody that, that advises the king because this is somebody I'm trusting with my life, literally. The baker bakes things. Not that complicated. But the fact that they end up in the jail at the same time makes you think there must have been a bad meal in the palace at some point. They both end up in there, and they both have dreams. They're both vexed by their dreams. The cupbearer, the baker. So as they're roaming the halls of cell block, whatever, Joseph finds out that they've had these dreams. And Joseph says, well, what? test me. Tell me what you, what you guys experienced. So they do. And they tell him their dreams. And Joseph hears what the cupbearer says, and he hears what the, um, what the baker says, and he interprets their dreams for them. To the cupbearer, he says, you know what? I got good news for you. God is telling you that in three days, you're going to be restored to your full office. And it'll be just like it was before with Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer is elated that he's not going to rot away in jail like Joseph probably will. And like everybody else in there probably will. And so he's elated. And Joseph says, hey, do me a favor, though. When you're back there and you're sitting next to Pharaoh every night, put in a good word for me. I mean, Joseph's kind of stuck. If Potiphar's number two and he's the guy that threw you in jail, the only guy who can get you out is number one. So he's saying, hey, why don't you, you know, it'd be nice if you just say, hey, you know, there's a good guy in prison named Joseph. He's a great guy. You ought to consider bringing him up here into the palace or something like that. To the baker, baker's all, oh, man, I can't wait to hear what he's got in store for me. Joseph says, you're going to hang. Uh, and the birds are going to come pick your flesh off. It's going to be awesome. And so the baker, we don't hear anything more of the baker except that that's what happens. So dreams can go either way on you. Be careful when you go to Joseph for interpretation of the dreams. Why that's important is it lets you know that Joseph is not just putting out like, like a weird uh, palm reader. He's not just putting out, you know, happy stories for everybody. He's willing to say, no, you're going to be hanged. And it's going to be ugly, actually. Sorry to hear that. And so he doesn't bother telling the baker put in a good word for me because he probably, the baker has no word to put in for him. Um, he's not doing anything. He's going to be hanged. So he tells these two their things, but then uh, after he interprets these, here's what we read in Genesis 40, verse 23. So the cupbearer is supposed to go put in a good word for him, but it says in the text, uh, Genesis 40, 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Um, that's what people do. You put all your chips in the basket of other people, you get forgotten. God doesn't forget him, though, we learn. He's forgotten by people. He's not forgotten by God. God is with him there. God is faithful with him. It says, in prison, God showed him his faithful love. But he's forgotten by the cupbearer who goes on his merry way. And then it says, two years later. So Joseph sits there for two more years. Two years later, 
Pharaoh, the big man himself, has two dreams that worry him greatly. So he does what Pharaohs do. He goes and gets his magicians and his wise men, gathers them around and says, hey guys, tell me, tell me what I dreamed or what, what it means. And they go, we have no idea, actually. Now you may remember, uh, those of you who are familiar with the story of Moses, when Moses starts doing miracles and things, Pharaoh at that time, different Pharaoh, but, but down the road, he will gather around his magicians and his wise men, and they will kind of go toe-to-toe with Moses for a bit, all right? Uh, but then Moses leaves them in the dust. They, they reach a point where they just can't replicate what he's doing. Okay, so these are Pharaoh's magicians and wise men, and again, they can't, they can't deliver the goods. So the cupbearer all of a sudden goes, hey, you know what? There's a guy in jail I met, cell block B. His name's Jerry or something, or, you know, Joseph. Joseph. You know, I had a weird dream one night, and he told me what was going to happen, and it happened. Pharaoh says, well, I want to meet Jerry. So they pull Joseph out of the, out of the thing, and it says uh, that they, sh- they shower him up. They shave him because he hadn't shaved two years. I mean, that's, that's one where even, even one of our 13-year-old boys could grow a beard in two years, probably. Joseph has been in jail for, for a long time, so he's got one of these deals. And you're a, you go in in the presence of Pharaoh clean shaven. Egyptian pharaohs, you ever notice any drawings of them with a beard? You got a bogus drawing. That's not how they rolled back then. You show up clean. So it says Joseph goes. He bathes, shaves himself. Now imagine being Joseph and just being in the presence of Pharaoh and the pressure that that would bring. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand in in the presence of Pharaoh of Egypt, 1800 B.C.-ish, 1750 B.C., the most powerful man in the world, the only man that can get you out of jail. And you're supposed to hear his dreams and interpret them. Now, the stakes here are not small. The best thing that can happen to Joseph is that if he can't do it, then Pharaoh just sends him back to jail. That's like the best thing. So the worst thing could be everything from I'm going to torture you for a long time and then kill you to I'm going to take you and the cupbearer who recommended you and torture you guys and then kill you. It could go any way, but the, really the best thing if he can't pull this off is going back to jail. So, interpret the dream correctly, or spend the rest of your life in jail, or be killed. No pressure, Joseph. So, I'm sure when he walks in, he sees his old friend, the cupbearer, who probably looks a lot different than when he saw him last. Cupbearer says, I told Pharaoh, you can interpret his dream. So, here's what happens next. This is uh, Genesis 41, verses 15 and 16. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night. No one here can tell me what it means. But I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Now listen to what Joseph says in response. It's beyond my power to do this. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Notice how our good man Joseph here continues to point upward at every turn. 
I hear you can interpret dreams. No, actually, I can't. Sorry to disappoint you, but God can. So he might reveal to me what the answer to this is. So at every turn, he continues to point upward. So Pharaoh then tells him the dreams. He has two dreams. In the first one, Pharaoh says, I'm standing on the bank of the Nile River. Now, that's the symbol in Egypt of everything that Egypt can do. It's its seat of power. The Nile is what makes Egypt different. The water, the fertility that that provides to, the, to their crops and cattle and all of that stuff. That's why when Moses later on turns the Nile to blood, it's a big deal. It's like the hand of God going over the, the windpipe of Egypt. Without the Nile, they're nothing. They're a deserty place like, like another wasteland that you may or may not have even heard of. But the Nile is a big deal. And he says, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And I looked down, and seven cows came out of the Nile. And they were big fatties. I mean, good steak kind of cows. They came out big, meaty cows. And then right after them came seven skinny cows, mangy old things. And the seven skinny cows ate the seven fat cows. And they didn't get any bigger. They stayed skinny and scrawny, mangy. He says, and then I got up and, I don't know, whatever he did, go to the bathroom or something. And he says, and then I, got a, and I had a second one, and it was like this. I, I saw one stalk of grain, and it had seven, you know, um, whatever they call them, heads on this one stalk, seven healthy heads of grain. And I looked, and they were really healthy. And then seven mangy, wispy, disgusting heads popped out and appeared right next to him, and they devoured the seven healthy ones. So at that point, he goes, I, uh, I don't know what it means. I know it ain't good, so tell me what it means. Now, Joseph seems to respond in what is almost no time at all. Both of Pharaoh's dreams, uh, this is uh, Genesis 41, 25. Joseph responds pretty quickly. He says, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. So he's saying, this is God revealing to you what is about to take place. He'll say elsewhere because there's two. He says usually when God lumps two dreams like that together, that's his way of saying this will happen. I have decreed this. And he says Egypt is going to have seven years of great prosperity, tons and tons of grain and cattle prosperity. You're going to have tons and tons of food, and it's going to be a great time. After that, though, seven years of famine are coming, and it's going to be so bad that it's going to make everybody forget those years of plenty. So Joseph says, so what you need to do is you need to grab an intelligent, wise man, put him over food distribution here in the kingdom, and ask him to set aside 20% of all of the food supply in those years where you, you're, you've got, you're overflowing with food. Take 20% of it and put it away so that when the famine hits, people will have enough to eat. Pharaoh likes this idea. It says in Genesis 41, 37 to 44, here's what happens next. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Whoa. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, 
I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen. He put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. Well, well, well. Our man Joe. You just can't keep a good man down, it appears. Here he goes. Just yesterday, he's got his big old Unabomber beard on. He hasn't sha- showered in God knows how long. And today, he's now number two. Two in the whole kingdom. Now, that little line, bow the knee, almost makes you remember a dream he had back at the beginning of the story where it's called, you know, you kind of get the sense the Bible's foreshadowing a bit here and saying, you know, when Joseph dreamed, this is what got him sold into slavery, you guys are going to bow down to me. And they laughed. They were offended by it. Well, now here we are. Nobody does anything without Joseph say so. He goes, you know, little prodigy boy to the pit, to the palace, to the prison, to the palace, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that some people in this room are riding high today, uh, that you came in here, man, everything's clicking, everything's clicking. You had a good breakfast. You're having a good hair day. You got the promotion. Your kids are obedient today. You're, you know, nothing goes wrong today. The weather's great at your house. Uh, uh, you know, whatever. You, you looked out and you saw a bird in the tree and you gave him a what's up and he gave you a what's up back. Everything's clicking today. Then there are others of you that would probably say, if there was space underneath the floor of the Ritz, that's where my life is. Nothing is going right. My relationships are broken. My finances are a mess. I feel judged and full of shame all the time, wherever I go. My life a year or two ago was going great, but right now, nothing goes right. Anything I do seems to turn to mush and just evaporate in front of me. I can't do anything right. Let me give you a few things out of this little journey of Joseph's, the up, down, up, down, up, down. We'll call it victory in the valley. How you hit the peaks and the valleys. And what you're going to find, this happened in the last service, just let it go. Uh, We'll get it fixed when time's right. Um, As it goes up and down, up and down, realize that part of what makes Joseph so amazing from a biblical standpoint is that he acts the same wherever he is. That the story is fundamentally about the faithfulness of God to Joseph. It's secondarily about the faithfulness of Joseph. So we'll start here. Trust God without panic. Joseph continues to live by faith even when he's in prison, and God blesses him for that. He continues to serve God in prison, and as a result, no matter where he goes, even when he's in prison, he tends to to rise. See, our circumstances will change. You may come back next week and your whole life's turned turned around for the better or turned around for the worse. Your mission in this life The calling that God gave you, the dream that God had for your life when he breathed the breath of life into you, okay? None of that changes based on your current circumstances. None of it. The mission of your life will remain the same. You honor God with your whole being. You help others to learn to do the same. 
You in the prison? That's the goal. You in the palace? That's the goal. What you really need to make it through any of that is the presence of God. And the way that you keep it, <laughs> that you keep is to stay blessable, as we said. And the way you do that is you keep your life aimed in the right direction. That your life should be a little bit like a compass. Like I said, it's going to happen. Just roll with it. Um, it's like a compass where the needle will keep pointing in one direction, regardless of which way you, you turn it. That that's how your moral compass should be. So we don't live lives of circumstantial purpose. Okay? Number two, testify to God without fear. Again, he points upward at every single turn. What stands out about his appearance before Pharaoh is how he continues to give God the credit. He continues to, um, to, to point to the superiority of God. Now, there's some stuff in here that I haven't told you because we don't have time to go full-scale Bible nerd in here. But one of the things that is there is in his soliloquies back and forth to Pharaoh, the word all. So if you want to go back into your, later on this afternoon or something, read through, underline every time he says all, okay? When he's talking to Pharaoh about God, one of the things he's making clear is that Pharaoh is not the actual ruler. That what God is up to and what God is doing is over all food, all rivers, all this, all that. There's a dominion that Joseph paints in what he's saying linguistically as you're reading through. Most English translations will keep the all. So you, if you go through, I think it's like 13 times that all pops up in that dialogue. Okay, the dream itself, the fact that Pharaoh, the most powerful man alive, needs the interpretation of a Hebrew prisoner is not something that should be lost. Formerly a Hebrew slave. Okay, so he has wise men, he's got magicians, he's got et cetera, et cetera. And if Joseph were to fail, then it would bring reproach on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Pharaoh is told there's going to be a famine in Egypt. That must have seemed impossible at the time, given the status that they had. And he's going to be told that the Nile, Egypt's source of life itself, is going to stop providing what the Nile provides. That must have also seemed strange. Again, remember Moses turning the Nile to blood a little bit later on. That's the equivalent of cutting off Egypt's source of life itself. So he doesn't stop and try to avoid talking about God in front of Pharaoh. He doesn't take credit for the dream's interpretation, even though it benefits him to do so. So that's number three. Thank God without pride. Now, there's two sides to this deal. Um, Joseph, even when he talks to Pharaoh and he interprets the dream, he doesn't put himself forward for that position. He says, you need an intelligent, wise man to oversee this. And I'm just that guy. He doesn't say that. He gives him the freedom to make that decision. He doesn't put himself out there. Pharaoh picks him. And then when that happens, he's still, no matter where you find Joseph and no matter what success he's having, he continues to point upward. He doesn't put himself forward for the position he ends up getting. He doesn't take credit for what's going on. He doesn't say, yeah, I'm your boy. When you need your dream interpreted, you know, you'd see him on a billboard like a personal injury attorney. You need your dreams interpreted, call Joseph at whatever, right? He never does that. It's only God can interpret dreams. I'm, I'm essentially a helper. I'm a, I'm a vessel, and may, maybe he'll help. 
He'll help you and, and put your heart back at rest, okay? So that's one, the classic pride. But there's another one that really becomes the theme for the rest of the book from this point forward, and that is pride that is rooted in resentment for others. It would have been very easy for Joseph to either resent God, how could you let me rot away after all I've done for you for two solid years? I could have been in Pharaoh's palace helping him out, bringing you glory and the best I get every time I'm faithful to you. I mean, look, I said no to Potiphar's wife. Look where it got me. I acknowledged the dream you gave me to my brothers. Look where it got me. Resentment. He could now take this station and go back and say, hey, Potiphar, I got a word for you here. Come pay me a visit. And by the way, bring your wife with you. I got something to say to her. He doesn't do that. Joseph doesn't fall into vengeance, which is ultimately usually rooted in pride, underneath entitlement. This is what's supposed to happen to me, and this is what happened. And so I will take this into my own hands, and I will meet it out. Now, we got a whole sermon coming on this later, all right, when he encounters his brothers next. But the Bible will give us instruction in, on two fronts. On the one hand, it will say, never forget what God did here. Remember this. And you see that in the command to remember the Passover. Uh, the altars, in fact, Jake, uh, Jacob's well, Joseph's own dad, builds an altar to commemorate a special event in his life. Um, Joseph, at the end of his life, will ask that his bones be dug up and taken and buried in a certain place because he believes that God's going to give him that land someday. There's a remembrance factor. Don't forget, remember, remember, remember. On the other hand, the Bible also says, forget. You need to forget that. You have to leave that behind. There's a disease I became familiar with this week. Um, and, and it reminded me of the fact that Joseph could have focused on all the injustices that had occurred in his life. He could have spent his time remembering the prison cell, what it was like to be in prison, why he shouldn't have been there, instead of enjoying the palace and being grateful to God for his deliverance from prison. HSAM, that's the disease. Hyperthymesia. Highly superior autobiographical memory. These are people who don't forget anything. Like, ask them if you find one of these folks and you say, Hey, uh, what did you have for dinner on April 2nd, 1978? They can go, uh, I had spaghetti with meat sauce. It was prego. Um, I burnt. Uh, the noodles a little bit. I overcooked them a little bit. In fact, the water overdid the pan, made the flame underneath turn purple. Um, we had a knock at the door. In the middle, it was the UPS man. He was delivering a package that was addressed to my daughter. Her name is this. They don't forget anything. I don't mean photographic memory. This is way beyond that. This is I don't forget anything. Now, I want you to think about how that could be a huge blessing, right? You can... You know, there are times where I just want to remember my kids' names, you know. 
if I can remember that, I'm doing pretty good. You know, your memory, you're just tired and kind of doing your thing, and you're like, oh, man, you know, I, my memory's getting so bad. And there are other times, man, am I glad I can't remember things. There's some things I don't want to remember. And, and there are things that God doesn't want me to remember. Now, there are a lot of people that strive to have this disorder. There are only 55 people that they're aware of on the planet that have this. Uh, my experience is there are a lot more than that on the planet. They, they don't remember, for instance, that their parents did all this good stuff for them. They do remember that they missed this event in their life. They don't remember that, you know, their, you know, their church did all this and stuff for them, was there for them during all this. What they do remember is the music was too loud. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We all have selective memories. And when we walk around with a lot of pride, we tend to forget the wrong things and remember the wrong things. We tend to forget the great things that God did in our life and remember the ways that we feel like we got shorted, when it really is supposed to be the opposite. Joseph will have two sons. This is a part we didn't read. I did that on purpose so we could talk about it now. He has two sons. One of the gifts Pharaoh gives him is a wife. He has two sons by her. They're, they're names. The first is Manasseh. It's rooted in the Hebrew word to forget. And Joseph says, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He had indeed suffered. There's no question about it. Okay? There's no question that he had, in fact, suffered. And there's no doubt that he had been horrible injustices have been done to Joseph over the years. That's not in question. But what he gives God thanks for is helping him forget. He names his kid, God help me forget. I mean, uh, and he doesn't mean forget the kid. He means forget what had happened. He says, because my father made me forget all my trouble in my father's household. So it's not like he, he's not saying I literally don't remember. He's, it's a metaphor. He's saying I no longer live in the pit and God has freed me from the grudges and the anger and the frustration that I had. Kid number two, Ephraim. And he says, I mean, Ephraim means twice fruitful in Hebrew. And Joseph explains the significance of the name. He says, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So he bears witness, God, not only did God help me forget all that junk from my past, but right here where I was sold into slavery and thrown into jail, he's made me fruitful right here. I didn't have to leave Egypt. I didn't have to say, oh, okay, I'm going to get out of Egypt. No, no, no. Right here where I was a slave and a prisoner and all this bad stuff happened to me, he's made me fruitful right here. And that made me think, I go, okay, just let's pretend do this little drill with me. Let's pretend that, you know, you, you have no children. So if you have them now, just pretend that you never had them. If you've never had kids, you're, you're on the right track. And then all of a sudden, here comes 
two kids. You get the opportunity to name them based on the way you see God's activity in your life. What would you name them? Would you be like Naomi, who in the story of Ruth says, no, 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 don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. Would you name him Mara? Would you name him I will never forget? Would you name them I could have been so much more? Uh, would you name them I'm ashamed? Would you name them never had a chance? Right? See, that way that you see your life is, is profoundly connected to the way that you live your life out in the presence of God, your ability to be faithful, your ability to experience gratitude, okay? Nothing about this. It's not like Joseph doesn't acknowledge what has happened. And in fact, eventually when he talks to his greeter or talks eventually to his brothers, he's going to say, look, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, okay? He's, he knows they were trying to hurt him and that they did temporarily harm him. But you'll have a choice, and you've got a choice to make starting this morning. What are you going to name your kids? What's going to shape the rest of your life? Is it going to be bitterness? Hatred? Rage? Shame? Because my hope is that you will, God will name us all some version. Like, my name may be Timothy, but that there's a part of me that will also be Manasseh, also be Ephraim, because right here where I'm planted, where different things have happened to me over the years, just like they happened to you and everybody else, that God can make me fruitful here, right? That God is making me fruitful right here. So I might have been a slave, I might have been a prisoner. I might have been, fill in the blank with your own thing that makes you feel crummy. <laughs> or it's like God, God gave you a raw deal. Or somebody else on this planet gave you a raw deal. You have your choice, sisters and brothers. Choose wisely. Because there are people who never really get past this. It reminds me of the early iPhone days when, um, I forgot it again. I did. Okay. Well, you'll just have, we'll have to use words then. You get an iPhone. And you got a great memory happening. Your kids are graduating from high school. A uh, new baby's born. Uh, you're having the meal of a lifetime, and you want to take the picture. You pull out your phone, you go to click it, boom, it won't let you. It says, memory full. Because you, you were cheap, and you got the 16-gig model or whatever, so now you can't take the pictures. The phone is so loaded with the past, it can't snap the present or the future. That's how people live. You know, all I can think about is how I was born into this family. I was born this way, that this happened to me when I was young. This whatever, look, 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 none of that is, nobody's denying that. Nobody would deny that. The, 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 the problem is, and I hope we can learn from our good man Joseph here, that God gives you a choice. Are you going to remember the injustice that happened to you, or are you going to remember the goodness of God in pulling you out of that and changing your name? Or are you going to forget that and remember the goodness of God 
Or are you going to just remember that and, and let the goodness of God fly right over your head? Like I said, the Bible gives you, it says there's a time for each. There's a time to never forget, and there's a time to absolutely forget. There's a time to remember, and there's a time not to remember. And what I think the big arc of the Bible says is you remember the mighty acts of God. You don't ever forget those. When God forgave your sins, when you came out of the water, when you thought that you would never recover from that and God healed you, when you thought you would never love again and you met Jesus, when you were lonely and you discovered the people of God, you remember those things and you never forget those. Or you can give the remote control of your life over to the people who hosed you, to the unfair, the unjust, those who never gave you a fair shake, and you can live in that story instead, should you choose to. Joseph can go through. Uh, he now has the power to annihilate, kill, murder, torture anybody he wants to. And yet he doesn't. A couple of scriptures I want to offer you as you continue to process this. One is the, comes from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. He's talking about all the thing, different things that people pursue in this life, status, uh, religious purity, things of that nature. Philippians 3, 13 to 15. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, I'm going to read you another one. Uh, it's not on the screen because I forgot to put it on there, sorry. But it's short and sweet, very sweet. Hebrews 8:12, which quotes the prophet Jeremiah. Speaking of God, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See, God has a choice too. See, God can remember, if he wants to, all of the different ways in which I've let him down over the years. I'll do it today, <laughs> right? He can choose to live that way. But he doesn't. And as a Christian, what I'm saying is I want to develop the heart of the Son of God himself. I want a heart like his. And so the God that made a choice to say, I will not remember that young man's sins. I will not hold your iniquities against you. I will remember your sins no more. Then far be it from me to live that out toward other people. That's the gospel in itself is, no, God could have remembered but he says, I'm making a decision to forget all the ways in which you've offended me, all the ways that you've done that. I'm going to be merciful towards your iniquities, and I'm not going to remember any of that. I'm, I'm going to embrace you as my son, 
And we're going to live in the future. Not, not, not count all this stuff up that you've done against me over the years. And so there's something extremely grace-oriented, gospel-centered about living that out in our response to other people. So if you're out there, you're living in the iPhone of the past <laughs> with limited memory, uh, ability to take on the new, let me encourage you with this story today from Joseph, okay? You don't have to be, uh, you don't have to live in that kind of miserable existence where the only thing you see is what's been done wrong to you. Live in the greatness of what God has done for you. That doesn't change the other. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just illuminates and shows how great God is. Joseph is starting to get to that point where he understands, you know, had I not gone to prison, guess what? I never would have been in Pharaoh's palace. He's starting to understand that, yes, they intended it for evil, but that's okay. They played right into God's hands, just like everybody thought when they crucified Christ. Oh, he's done now. He's done now. Satan's sitting up there clapping. Way to go, guys. He played right into God's hands again. So do you understand, sisters and brothers, get out of your past. Live in the future that God has for you. God's, God, God's got a dream for your life just like Joseph's. I mean, it may be different. Amen. Listen, stop letting Satan hold you captive. Stop letting him hold you captive. Live in that. I got to stop. Yeah, they got red numbers at me. Yeah, amen, amen. Well, we'll come back. We'll come back. We'll finish this thing off in a couple of weeks. But man, as I look out there, I see some of these faces. I know your stories, man. They're 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 incredible. You know, and some of you have survived stuff that that I've never had to encounter, and I'm hopefully never will. But man, I hate to see when people decide they're going to live in that and let Satan just kind of grab them and pull them under. If you live in, in vengeance and wrath and anger, it's like drowning in the ocean and asking somebody to throw you a bag of bricks. It will sink you. But if you live in victory, you live in the dream, you believe in the dream that God gave you when you came out of that water, okay, that's a lot stronger. You can live in that, and you can walk in victory. Right now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, one of the great moments of victory in all of creation. It is the greatest moment of victory, and it looked like a moment of defeat. Jesus Christ, crucified, who, by God's grace, remembers our sins no more. He is the evidence, the down payment of God saying, I remember your sins no more. And so today, we want to walk in that. We want to live in that. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. And uh, we do this every week here at New Venice Church. And I hope that today it's a meal of grace for you and that you walk out of here living in the future and what God, where God's wanting to take you. Uh, if you miss the elements on your way in and you'd like some, just put your hand in the air. We've got some ushers bringing it in around. There we go. Yeah. It's always my family. I miss it. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the gift of, of your willingness to forget. We give you thanks. Father, for those who are living in constant anger, I ask for healing. For those living, feeling like the world is stacked against them, Father, give them peace. Give them a vision. Give them a dream, Lord. Help us to clear the memories 
off our hard drive that need to go keep the ones that should stay and step out into the future, Lord. Because we know that what you are about, what you're trying to do in our lives is amazing and that what others intended for evil, you, Father, intended for good. And so we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. Pray this in Christ's name.